0: Philippians 4, verse 1 to 9 says, Therefore, I'm reading from the New Living Translation, Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stay true to the Lord. This is Paul writing, I love you and long to see you, dear friends, for you are my joy and the crown I receive for my work. It's a good start. but Then, a bit tricky now. Now, I appeal to you, you, Odea, and Syntica, and apologies to you, if I've got their names pronounced wrong, but that's how I think they're pronounced. Please, Because you belong to the Lord, settle your disagreement. And I ask you, my true partner, to help these two women, for they worked hard with me in telling others the good news. They worked along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers, whose names are written in the book of life. Always be full of joy in the Lord. I say it again, rejoice. Let me say it again, rejoice. Let everyone see that you are considerate in all you do. Remember, the Lord is coming soon. Don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. Tell God what you need and thank Him for all He has done. Then, I'll say that word again, actually, I think, then you will experience God's peace, which exceeds anything we can understand. His peace will guard your hearts and minds as you live in Christ Jesus. And now, dear brothers and sisters, one final thing fix your thoughts. what is true, and honourable, and right, and pure, and lovely, and admirable. Think about things that are excellent and worthy of praise. Keep putting into practice all you learned and received from me, everything you heard from me and saw me doing, then the God of peace will be with you. Amen. Just pause for a moment and just listen to God's word. One of the practices we should do is just to pause and take in God's word. And um, this morning, there's lots of highlights in this passage, lots of verses that you may quote quite regularly about life. But this is a whole passage I want to look at. And I'm going to start with something perhaps a bit difficult. And uh, as I start with this difficulty, let's just say the God of peace be with you as I say these things. I just, just raise your hand. This is, this is an honesty exercise possibly. But if you've ever had any conflict within your family, Okay, very much an honesty session here. Okay, okay. Any conflicts in your workplace? Always, oh, oh, oh yeah, she worked, Sarah works with me. Okay, you're my only other colleague, Sarah, that's terrible. Okay, never mind. In your school, maybe in your school? Bit of a difficult one, this one, but in your church? just, just oh, oh, Okay, I thought it's was such a peaceful church, but obviously, okay. Now, if we look around this church right now, there are some quite noticeable differences. You may notice those differences. There's some obvious differences in the way we look, but there are also differences in upbringing, in education, in life experiences. And the truth is, when a group of people come together on a regular basis, there will be some form of conflict. And the reason we have some form of conflict is that I've not stayed at home and you've not stayed at home and we've come together. Because staying at home and keeping yourself to yourself is very nice and straightforward and bring you some form of peace. Not the peace I believe we're talking about here, but we'll bring you some form of peace. But when you come into community, when you make decisions together, when you plot how to do life together, conflict can happen. Sometimes it happens in the smallest things. We're hoping over the next year to, to replace the floor and the backdrop of church potentially as well. And we know, I know that we are not going to please everybody. I think that's pretty much guaranteed, that not everyone will be pleased. And the reality is that being part of a community is that unity does not come from you getting your own way. It doesn't come from that. The church, despite small or even large conflicts, has an opportunity even when there's disagreements. And it has a glorious opportunity. Because despite our different backgrounds... When we have unity in diversity, it becomes something beautiful. In the Lord, we are brothers and sisters, and we're learning to love one another well. We are always learning to love one another well. And there's a beautiful picture of what the church can be like, what it could be like. Uh, one of my favorite verses is Revelation 5, where the tribes come together. But there is one also in Acts that I love, I love. Acts 13, verse 1, where the church in Antioch lists a whole load of different characters. Now, remembering that Antioch is a busy metropolitan city with a huge mix of people with lots of different statuses, socially, ethnicity, economically. Also lots of challenges, gambling, brothels, greed, all sorts of things we could list. But there is a church in Antioch that's spreading the gospel in the midst of these challenges. And some of these challenges you may relate to because they're challenges we probably see in our society still today. And in that verse, there is a list of people. There's Barnabas. You may know, of course, Barnabas, described in Acts 4 as a Jewish man of Levitical heritage, likely to have been quite rich, known for his generosity, known for his encouragement. Simeon, who called Niger, reported as being a black man. Lucius of Cyrene from North Africa, from a, a group of people uh, used by God to bring the gospel to Antioch. Manian, brought up in the court of Herod. Yes, that Herod. Probably meant he was from Jerusalem probably from high society, probably an older man. And of course, Saul or Paul, as he's now known, praise God, a Jewish Pharisee, a a zealot. So in that one verse, you've got a Jewish man who grew up on a Roman island. You've got two men, likely from North Africa, a socially elite man growing up in Jerusalem and an educated Pharisee who previously sought the church's destruction. What a mix of people in that one verse. And Paul, of course, is this, the zealot who writes this letter to the Philippians church, who carries this burden of what the church can be, who carries this picture of unity. And of course, what he addresses at the beginning of Philippians chapter 4 is disagreement, is disunity. And in this letter, he takes time to call out two women in the church for their disagreement. These were women that Paul knew, women that had worked with, with him for the gospel, these are women that he'd probably done something together with, who are who who working together for the gospel. But a disagreement has arisen. Their focus has shifted. They've lost focus on Christ and what he's done for them and what he's done for this world. They've lost focus on the gospel task that they've obviously been working towards. Now, I've quoted this quote many times. It's one of my favourites, a William Temple quote. They've lost focus on the fact that the church is the only society that exists for the benefit of those who are not its members. They've lost the gospel focus and the gospel purpose. They've lost that other-centered purpose. And it's likely when we lose that purpose and focus that other secondary things start to take over and disagreements start. And Paul is trying to get them back to that history of what they did for the gospel, reminding them of where their focus needs to be. And Paul commends them to do something. And the New Living Translation, I like NLT for readability, and and I think it's a good version. But when you're studying a a passage or you're preaching, it's always good to look around and and think about uh, other translations. So the New Living Translation says they should settle their disagreements. Uh, The Bible I use for study is an ESV. That says agree in the Lord. Um, Probably New American Standard might be my next choice. Live in harmony. But I get to the King James Version. Well done, King James Version. Saves the day with, I think, the best translation of this verse. It says, be of the same mind in the Lord. And the key phrase here is, in the Lord. Be of the same mind in the Lord. The focus is him. The focus is his work. The focus is his mission. When we make it all about ourselves, we lose focus. We need to be in the Lord. To have the same mind in the Lord. So this first part of peace and unity for me is to get our focus back. Maybe it's to refocus. Maybe we've lost some of our focus and maybe these two women had lost their focus. They needed to know this is not about them. It's not about me. It's not about you. It's about him. It's about Jesus. Our eyes are on him. It's the first place, I believe, for peace and unity. Then the second key comes in this passage Uh, A great phrase, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, some translations will say rejoice in the Lord always or always rejoice in the Lord. And repeated again, I say rejoice. You might start singing at this point and feel free if you want to start around. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. And again, I say rejoice. How do we overcome conflict? How do we get peace? Yes, being focused on him. But rejoicing. Rejoicing. Again and again. Now I love the world. Rejo- uh, love the world. I love the word rejoice. Rejoice is a positive word. It's an uplifting word. I slightly struggle with the word always. Rejoice always, because I'm not always sure that I am rejoicing always. But let me ask you a question: Is there a reason right now for you to rejoice in the Lord? Can you find a reason to rejoice? In the Lord, can you find a reason? Yes. In this moment, you can find a reason. In any moment, you can find a reason to rejoice. And rejoicing will change everything. Conflict drifts into the background when you start rejoicing. Have you sometimes got to the point where you've even forgotten what you might be arguing about? Have you ever got to that point? Because it changed, the focus has changed. You are rejoicing. In the midst of rejoicing, we forget what we were disagreeing over because our focus has changed and our rejoicing has started. Let's get back to rejoicing. And then in this passage, and again, some translations say, say, be considerate and remember the Lord is coming soon. But I love this. This is the third key for me. The wording again, perhaps I prefer, is the Lord is near. The Lord is near. We are focused. We are rejoicing. But we know that the Lord is near. E. He is at hand. He's coming again. That changes everything. If you really believe that Jesus is coming again, it doesn't just change some things, it changes everything. It changes all things. It changes how you live your life. I remember as a teenager being left alone at home quite a few times. My mum had a job that took her away from home and my dad, it was an overnight job. And my dad would stay with her, and I was left alone, home alone. It's another, yeah, another famous film that. Yeah, sometimes watched at that season that I've not mentioned yet. And I remember the hours before they came back, uh, probably actually the minutes before they came But let's just be honest, the minutes before they came back, how I would try to get everything tidy and everything washed up and everything done. Trying, and my mum has, it's fair to say that she has quite high standards of cleanliness. And I never quite reached them, but at least just to try to make things look tidy again. And you're rushing to get whatever needs to be done before your parents arrive home. I won't look at my daughter and ask that question. Does she try to get everything done before, um, before we come home? That's what you try to do, isn't it? You try to get everything ready and right. And in fact, in some ways, that's a little bit how we live our lives. In fact, we relegate Jesus sometimes. He's coming back, so let's just rush to get things tidy. But the, the, the issue is he is at hand. He is near. You live your life with that knowledge that he is at hand, he is near. In fact, if you actually believe the Lord is at hand, you should be ready to meet him every day of your life. And that changes things. So we focus, we refocus, we rejoice again and again, and we live knowing that Jesus is at hand. And that is some keys to unity and peace. And of course, we move towards the highlight verse well, I, like, I think every verse, well, most verses in this passage are highlights, but we like to pick highlight verses, don't we, sometimes? We like to quote that verse. This is that verse that's wonderful. And probably the highlight verse that many people will quote from Philippians 4, 7 is the peace of God that passes all understanding. And it's an amazing verse. But there's a bit of a danger sometimes taking out a highlight verse. You don't look at the context of which that verse has come. And that context has come in the midst of disagreement and disunity. And there are clues of how to get to that place of peace. It says then. It says then the peace of God will come that passes all understanding. So when it says then, what does that mean? You've got to read the before. And the clues are there. This verse doesn't magically appear out of nowhere. It's part of something already going on. And of course there's a verse before that is, here's a big, big clue. Verse 6 says, In every situation, by prayer and petition, present." your requests to God, then. So don't quote verse 7 without quoting verse 6, and maybe even the whole passage before. In every situation, bring your prayers, bring your requests, lean into God. I had a wonderful mother-in-law, as some of you know, a woman of prayer, and we would often, to be fair, and I have repented since, but we would tease her a little bit about praying for parking spaces, she would always pray for a parking space. But there's something I learned about my mother-in-law, praying for the small things. That when the big things came, she was always ready to pray. She was always ready to pray. If you're praying for the small things, and you're a person of prayer, you're ready for when the big things come. And big things did come. When dealing with cancer and death, there she was praying and worshipping. Because she was in a far stronger position to tackle the big issues of life. Because she tackled every issue with prayer. Have you noticed that with people of prayer? They never stop being people of prayer. Whatever they face. Whatever comes their way. And of course verse 6 says, says, don't be anxious. Do not worry about anything. But again, let's not forget this is in the context of prayer. This is in the context of leaning into God. God. It doesn't say you won't experience anxiety. It doesn't say that. It tells you what to do when you feel anxious. Lean into God. Pray. Now some of you know as a church at the moment we're looking at issues in the sanctuary course around mental health. And some of you I know are looking individually at that and looking at the videos or doing it in a group. And I really encourage you to do the whole course. Even just listening in the videos so people with lived experiences have been so helpful. And I'm glad that we're addressing such key issues that affect us all in lots of different ways. And we should be open and honest as a church about where we are. Now, one of the most honest sessions was when we looked in session two at the issue of anxiety and depression. And I'm just going to show a clip from Curtis's story. And I encourage again all of you to engage with this course. Watch the whole video of session two. But just going to show you a couple of clips this morning. Now, as a child, Curtis had experienced anxiety and panic panic attacks, and then went into ministry. And we hear a little bit of his his quite difficult and challenging story uh, here right now. So if we can play clip one.
1: After college, I felt called into a career in ministry. Eventually I became a, a pastor of a church. I took over as the lead pastor from the founding pastor. I didn't quite recognize how stressful that was. Then we had a dot-com crash, which caused a loss of membership, a loss of revenue. I had to do layoffs. It was just getting to be too much. And uh, the first warning signs was for me, as is often the case, was insomnia. I was having a harder time sleeping. A sense of joylessness started to creep in into my sense of work. Because of my own perception of what a senior pastor of a church had to be like, I kept so much of that inside unrecognized myself and unrecognized by other people. The pain with the isolation is what especially made it worse. It was a self-imposed isolation. And so it wasn't until I had that breakdown and where I could no longer function and went into disability, that it was revealed to me of just how capable the church was to actually extend that grace to me. And they were incredibly generous in giving me leave. Never really got the sense that I had let anybody down. Received a tremendous amount of room, brought meals and expressed care, but they were also very respectful into not prying or demanding an answer. I made it through to a sabbatical. And then once the sabbatical started, I just stopped sleeping, like completely, for about two and a half weeks and just Spun into uh, really a dark place with multiple panic attacks, sometimes multiple panic attacks a day, and that sent me into a six-month disability where I was barely functioning. I think at that at that time, and so that was a major crisis where I was thought I was done. It sent me into a pretty dark night of the soul where I felt very distant from God and where God just felt completely
0: absent. Quite okay, quite a difficult story. And we're going to come to a second clip in a moment. I hope you'll show you something of what's happened here. But this story continues into a time when there is recovery. Praise God! Recovery through diagnosis, through medication, through engagement in a regular rhythm of prayer. Curtis finds some healing. But what strikes me here is after this long period, and I'm going to emphasise that word "long period" of medication, of prayer, and learning, he understands that there are two extremes. That we sometimes package people into when it comes to mental health and this is what he says after and i just want to show this clip i found this clip really helpful
1: i realized that my own sense of calling as a pastor was outdated frankly and that god was calling me to something new in particular a career in the social sector space from a secular perspective I really am grateful for that crisis and for the dark night of the soul Uh, and I view it as part of God gently and sometimes forcefully, you know, pushing me into a new career. I would still call myself as somebody who is very prone to anxiety. I'm much more aware of it now and I catch it earlier and I have much more set of practices that I can go to uh, when I do catch it. But it's certainly an ongoing journey and I think if I have one message on anxiety and depression for Christians, it's that there is a deeper third way than the two primary options that are so often offered to us as a response. So I would say one of those options is the anxiety is a sin, it's a character flaw. So we're supposed to pray it away, have God just sort of somehow whisk it away if we pray hard enough. The other model is just to simply say then, well, it's just solely a mental health condition for secular mental health to treat alone, for us to get therapy, and to, get to take medication, all of which has value and should be done, but to simply reduce anxiety and depression to simply that realm of a secular mental health condition that our faith has nothing to speak to is also going the other extreme. And so what I really want to invite Christians is to think about something like anxiety as really an opportunity for spiritual growth. But there's a way to go through anxiety in a way that allows God to actually take us deeper, not to make it go away, but it actually is a door for us to go through. for God to do a deeper work of formation in us.
0: Now I'm going to be quite honest and upfront with you that much of what Curtis experienced as a pastor and as a leader, is many of the shared experiences that I've had. Things knocking on my door. Loneliness, um, false and unreal expectations, false accusations. And when they knock on the door, just someone quoting a magic verse at you, do not be anxious about anything, isn't always helpful. Because do not be anxious can be read sometimes and translated to saying anxiety is a sin. Now I can honestly say there have been some dark times. I've not had a diagnosis. I'm quite cautious. There is a family history of depression and I can say this confidently here knowing that I am loved. Uh, I've faced some mental health challenges and there may be some people in this room, hopefully not in this room, but I don't think there are any in this room actually, but some people that might say, you know, you can't be a church leader or a ministry leader or any form of leadership with mental health challenges. And there'll be some that might go, go and read Philippians 4.7 and not be anxious about anything. But I do come to these verses knowing that there is a responsibility on leaders. That responsibility that Curtis talked about, that third way. And for me, that third way is that verse of prayer, of leaning into God, of bringing everything to God in prayer. Leaning into God, knowing that what I have... What I've experienced, what I've gone through, and offering it to God and letting him do something with it. And i tell you what he does with it. He takes this offering. He takes those experiences that you are going through. He takes the circumstances that you are in. He takes the pain that you are in. And he creates something beautiful and something new. It might not be instant might be sometimes you get an immediate revelation. Sometimes you get a reminder. Sometimes he gives you a, a sense and a faith to understand that all will be well again. He might come and remind you that you are his child. And he might come and remind you that you're not defined by anything that you have been or that you have done or any condition that you might be suffering from. But you know that God is at hand, that he is with you. And as you walk with him, something emerges that is beautiful. We mentioned in our group that sometimes the best music, the best art comes out of brokenness. Now, if the world can create such beauty out of darkness and brokenness, how much more can God do? How much more beauty can God create out of brokenness? But what does it require? It requires us to lean into God, to walk with God to focus on God, to rejoice in what he's doing, to know his presence is real and it's at hand. And I believe that's what Curtis talks about, that third way. You're walking and leaning into God. You're not being defined by what you have. And you're letting God work in every situation, in every circumstance that you are going through. Praise God for that third way. That third way is actually, I believe, God's way. It's God's way. As Exodus 14 verse 14 says, the Lord himself will fight for you. You need only be still. Stillness is hard for some of us. For, uh, myself, Beth, Marion and Ralph went on a uh, retreat. Marion and Ralph were there for 24 hours. We managed the day. And uh, one of the first exercises we had to do was turn off our phones Go for a walk, not speak to anybody, not talk to anybody, just be silent and have no noise. Half the room went, yes, including my wife. Thank goodness for that. Yes, I've got an hour free from everything. The other half of us went, what? A whole hour? Silence? With the Lord? Can we do that? And you know what we did? And God speaks. God speaks in the stillness. In fact, he told me quite clearly not to walk as a victim of circumstance, but to walk in the privilege of my call in him. Just very simple words. And I'm still learning to do that. I'm struggling at times, but I know that God is at hand. And he speaks and he creates something beautiful, something new. And even now I feel, you know, this is not the end. This is the beginning of something that's being created. And you may feel the same. You may feel this morning we've talked about walking in victory. And it's the beginning. We're walking in resurrection power. It is the beginning of what God is doing in your life. Of what God is creating in your life. Of what he's shaping in you. That your life experiences and what you've been through. There's a reason. God is working all things together for good. And again, I know sometimes we pluck that verse out as a highlight and we shove it down people's faces at times when they don't need it. But it's true. God is working together for good. And he's doing something in your life. This is the beginning. What God has given us is more than our circumstance. It's more than what we're going through. I look... You know, the back here, There's an empty, an em- well it's not empty at the moment, there's, there's kids in there and there's an office there. But one of the things of praying for that house and its emptiness was that God would fill it. Now he may fill it differently to what we imagine, but I believe he's filling it and will continue to fill it with prayer. As a house of prayer, with ministry, with work, with friendship, with community, hopefully with food as well, with a table. God will do something, filling something that's empty. And that's just an analogy of a house. What more does he do with an actual life? When we come to him with our emptiness, he fills us. In our brokenness, he creates beauty out of ashes. You know, I believe that we want to create a place where disciples truly are created. Disciples that make other disciples. Where the prophets and the pioneers that sometimes are misunderstood are embraced and get a chance to follow their call in God. Because God uses our circumstances. He uses our gifts. He uses our personalities. He doesn't want us to be defined by them or labeled with them, but he wants us to work with him because he is creating a masterpiece. God is the author of your life and he's creating a masterpiece because we allow him in. We follow his example. You know, Jesus used his solitude in the Garden of Gethsemane to, to really wrestle with his father about his own calling. Again, we don't like to use those terminologies. How could that happen? But he did. He wondered if there could be some other way. Some other way to fulfill that calling on that hard road to grace. All of his life he had known what he was on earth to do, but when it was time to walk into it, there were a few things he needed to say to God the Father about it. And he stayed in that garden until he knew for sure that this was God's way for him. And he emerged, we know, with, with sweats of blood in that place to walk the path that was laid out for him. And he walked it. Now that's a peace that goes beyond understanding, isn't it? To be able to walk a path of suffering for us. There are people in life that want to go through life with ease and they think that is peace. They seem to have a clearly marked out path for success and security. But I don't think they've heard the fatal question. The fatal question is, are you prepared to lay down your life? Are you prepared to exchange your life for his life? Do you really want to be a disciple? Do you really want to follow Christ? We know that what God is calling us to do is to take that path. And I think paying that cost is where we find the peace that passes all understanding. It's not a peace the world knows, but it's a peace that we need right now. It's what the world needs. If we're in the muck and the mire, we need to allow Jesus to meet us there. We need to allow him to fight for us. We need to allow him to give us strength. We need to allow him to do his work. This can only be done with his strength. To lay down your life needs God's strength. You need to converse with your father the way that Jesus conversed even with his father in the midst of suffering to follow that path. So let's just in a moment, just pause, shall we? Just allow God to give us strength. Just to remind ourselves. There's a few things of words of truth. 2 Corinthians 12 verse 9 says, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is. Is made perfect in weakness. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Jesus says, come to me, all who are tired and burdened. And I will give you rest. Hallelujah. You're called to lean into God. To lean into that rest. You may be wrestling with something right now. Maybe a loss that you can't come to terms with. A condition that hasn't been healed. Maybe it's a sacrifice that you're making, that you're seeing other people not make. Maybe you've felt, as I felt, a victim. A victim of circumstance. It's time to lean into God. It's time for him to bring out the beauty from the ashes. And I just think just not sure what exactly maybe what the Lord is saying, just pause for a moment, but I think there are some people in this room where the path that God has laid out for you is not perhaps a conventional one, one that you thought you would go on. And just feel that if you actually, if you're on a conventional path, I think you're missing out on all that God has planned for you. God has taken you on an unconventional path. And there are two words that come to mind, and they come from the Christmas story. I've said Christmas. Because you know, the Christmas story is not conventional. Jesus coming as a child, God coming as a child, Emmanuel is not conventional. God doesn't do conventions. But there are two words that we hear in that story. And I think there are two words that you need to hear right now if you're following an unconventional route or path, an unexpected path. And it's the words the shepherds heard the angels say Fear not. Fear not. Fear not. Those who live in the shelter of the Most High will find rest in the shadow of the Almighty. He alone is my refuge. He alone is my place of safety. He alone is my God and I trust him. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Fear not.